from the book of Genesis. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me to preserve life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, boys and girls. I've never said that before. I'm keeping you on your toes a little bit. I uh, got to be back with you this morning. I was away last weekend, as you know. I was up in the Poconos with my family. That's a mountain range up in Pennsylvania, if you don't know it. A little time away. Thank you, Father Switch, for holding down the fort for us. And I've got a funny story. We're up in the Poconos at a place called the Pinecrest Lake. There's a resort there, the Pinecrest Golf Club and Resort. My brother-in-law has a house there. It's a fantastic place. And so we're sitting on the beach. Didn't go in the water because it was, you know, 80 degrees and way too cold. Uh, but we're sitting, on, <laughs> we're sitting on the beach, and I was talking to my, it was happy hour, but I was talking to my, my nephew, Bobby, who's like 23 or something, getting a CPA. And um, we got into a conversation about politics. And he said to me, uh, he said to me, you know, no matter what happens with this election, it'll all work out in the end. No matter what happens with this election, Uncle Chris, it'll all work out in the end. You know what I said to him? I looked at him and I said, Bobby, that is the stupidest thing you've ever said in your entire life. <laughs> it was happy hour, so it went fine. But, uh, but the funny thing is, you know, I was actually serious. <laughs> and, and I was serious, not because he's not a stupid kid by any stretch. I was serious because I want I to challenge you on something. It's a, it's a biggie. To say it will all just work out in the end, what on earth would cause that to be true? I mean, it's sort of like the people that talk about karma, right? That somehow, somehow the universe will just serve justice. Somehow it's all going to be okay. You know what, friends? That is complete and utter stupidity because the universe is a cold, dead, heartless place. The universe, karma, Mother Nature, Fairy Godmother, whatever you want to call it. The universe has no mind, it has no will, it has no interest in you whatsoever. The universe, Mother Nature, whatever you want to call it, could care less about you or me. Because you know what? It doesn't care a lick about anything. It doesn't have a mind or a will. So to say that just things will just somehow work themselves out is stupid. <laughs> It's a naive thing to say. It's kind of like, you know, little orphan Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. And, and Bobby and I got into a little conversation about this because I, I didn't let him off the hook that easily, as you might guess. And I said, Bobby, you know, I, I'm a Christian. He is too, actually, for that matter. But he didn't really think it through when he said what he said. And I said, you know, Bobby, I'm a Christian. I'm also a priest. He said, yeah, I know that, Uncle Chris. And I said, I said you know, I do believe that everything will be okay, but I don't, I don't believe that because of karma or the universe or... Mother Nature? Nonsense. That's, that's ridiculous. I do believe it because I believe in God. I believe it because I believe that God wills that in the end all things will work out okay. I am not, an, I'm not a naive idealist, little orphan Annie, naively proclaiming the sun will come out tomorrow. Spare me. We can say it'll all work out. But we can say that as Christians for one reason, because we worship a God who makes it all work out, who has a plan, who has a will, who has a mind, and who cares about you. And I'm going to look at this dynamic today in this ongoing series on the dysfunctional family we've been reading about all summer. And I love Father Switz's comment last week that here at Trinity Church in this sermon series, we're keeping the fun and dysfunctional. That was great. 
the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been looking at this whole cast of characters all summer. And I hope you see two things, that this family, like all families, is severely dysfunctional. And they actually look a lot like our own. And yet, here's the key that we're going to dive on today. Despite all that brokenness and sin and fallenness, it all works out. So we're keeping the fun and dysfunctional this week, friends, and we're going to look at three points today. We're going to look at the sins of the father, Jacob, the sins of the sons, Joseph and all of his brothers, and then the plan, the providential, the sovereign plan of God. So the sins of the father, Jacob, the sins of the sons, Joseph and his brothers, and the sovereign plan of God. So the sins of the Father. Let me look at this a minute. We've been, we've been working our way through this sermon series, and I hope you've noticed something, that this idea of sin and brokenness and uh, dysfunction, it kind of repeats itself over and over again. If you picked up on this, I'll show you a couple of examples in a second. But before I do- dial into that, let me just explain something important. We use this word sin a lot in church, and it sounds really bad, you know? In my mind, it conjures up an idea of a, a preacher going, you're a sinner. That happened to me once. It wasn't a terribly uh, engaging opportunity, I would say. But the word sin, it comes from a Greek word, hamartia. And it's actually a pretty innocuous word. It means, it means to shoot an arrow and miss a target. That's what sin means. It doesn't mean, it's not a big, great, big, hairy monster. I guess it could be. But quite frankly, sin is just to shoot and miss. To miss a target, to miss the mark, is how you define it. And we see this sin, this brokenness, this dysfunction, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same kettle of fish. This stuff repeats itself over and over again in this family we've been looking at. For example, Jacob, the sins of the father. Uncle Jake, or Daddy Jake. Jacob had a besetting sin. Jacob had lots of besetting sins, but the one I want to dial on on today is that he played favorites. He had one boy in particular whom he loved over all the others. He favored, Jacob favored his son, Joseph. Joseph was, uh, Joseph was strong, he was charismatic, he was a good-looking kid. He was the son of J- Jacob's favorite wife, the prettiest one, Rebecca. No, no, no surprise that Joseph is this good-looking kid. And so Jacob spoiled Joseph, right? He, he gave him more than the 11 other kids. He gave him this coat of many colors, right? The Technicolor dream coat, if you know your 70s uh, musical stuff. The idea, though, I want you to see here is that Jacob played favorites with his son, Joseph, and all the other kids knew it. There was no secret. There was no surprise. There was no, like, hey, you're the favorite, but I'm going to tell everybody else I love you all the same. No, man. They all knew it, that Joseph was his favorite. And if you're like me, you've got to ask yourself a question. I'm a dad. I've got three kids. Many of you have got children. You've seen them anyway. You gotta ask yourself the question, you know, what kind of dad would play favorites with his son or his daughters for that matter? What kind of a jerk would do something like that? Well, you gotta realize something important that Jacob's daddy did the same thing with him. Remember? Jacob had a brother named Esau, right? Way back. Talked about Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob grabs the heel of Esau, his brother. Esau was his daddy's favorite. Jacob was mommy's favorite. See a pattern here? Is it just me, or am I reading into this, or what? Do you see a pattern that there's this father, Jacob, who's got a favorite son named Joseph, but he himself was jealous of his brother Esau? Kind of rolls downhill, doesn't it? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. It's almost like 
here, think about it like this. It's almost like sin and brokenness and dysfunction, whatever you want to call it, hamartia, right, to miss the mark. It's almost like it's a, I'm going to say it, it's almost like it's hereditary. But it's not just dad who's at fault here. That's, that's the first one, the sins of the father, this jealousy, this, no, this, jealousy, this uh, favoritism. The second one, the, the sins of the sons. Joseph, the favorite kid, the favorite boy. Joseph was kind of a punk, man. He was arrogant, you know. He, he, uh, he was smart, good-looking, charismatic kid. He was arrogant. He's, he's kind of like that kid. I remember this one kid on my baseball team. My, my dad was the coach. I wasn't a very good baseball player. I will confess. Uh, I always played right field and never knew why, but that's another matter. <laughs> uh, but there was this one kid on our baseball team who was the pitcher, and this kid was a rock star, man. And he, not only was he a rock star and a tremendous athlete and baseball player, he let everybody know about it, and everybody resented him for it. Just last week, we talked about Joseph, the 17-year-old teenage kid who had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. He was that kind of kid, right? Joseph was that kind of kid that just got on your nerves, man. The kind of kid you're like, you know, that kid's got it coming, man. Young, naive, cocky, full of confidence and low on experience and common sense. It's a dangerous combination. See a pattern here? You see a pattern? Joseph's father, Jacob, was the exact same way. See, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Or look at the other brothers. Look at the 11. We see the reaction of Joseph's brothers, right? Rightly, they're frustrated with their brother Joseph. Here's this dreamer, right? This kid thinks he knows everything. We're going to bow down to the youngest one. Are you serious? And, what, and so what, are they, what, what does it generate in their own spirit, right? Well, obviously, jealousy and contempt. And the 11, they hatch a plot, right? I got an idea. What? Let's whack him. Let's just kill him. Let's get rid of him. And they plot to kill him because of their jealousy and envy. They plot to get rid of him. See a pattern? Remember Esau, Jacob's brother? When Jacob and Esau, when Jacob steals Esau's brother, his birthright, what does Jacob say? I'm going to kill that kid. I'm going to kill my brother because I'm jealous of him. Is it just me or is there a pattern here? <laughs> what I want you to understand is that this sin, this brokenness, this dysfunction, it's hereditary in one sense, isn't it? In fact, in all senses. I'll get to that in a second. But it's hereditary. Let me, let me ask you a question. Kind of stop there for a second. Take a deep breath and a pause. Fellas, guys in the room, has your wife ever said this to you? You know you're just like your father. Anybody ever said that? It's just, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But, or, 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 or ladies, has your husband ever said to you, you know, you're just like your mom? They never say it about the good stuff, do they? My, mom, my wife never said, you know, your, your dad was so, so generous. You're just like your father. She never says that. We say it. We say you're just like your father. You're just like your mother. You're just like fill in the blank, man. You know why we say it? Because we admit and recognize the heredity, the heredity dysfunction of sin. We inherit it. We are like our parents, like it or not, and most of us don't, but we fall into the very same trap. You know why? Tell you why? Because it's hereditary. I mean, certainly it's hereditary in the general sense of living in a fallen world, right? We can all admit that, that we've, we've inherited a broken world. I mean, look around you, man. 
But I'm willing to say, so in a general sense, of course it's hereditary, Father Chris. We, don't, we get that. But, but I want to dial in a little more. And I want to just ask you a question and, I'll, and, I, and make a statement that I will bet that you struggle against some of the very sins, sins that your parents did. I do. You do too. And I'm willing to bet that your children will struggle with the very same things that you do. You know why? It's hereditary. There's a text. I'm going to get to the good part in a second. Don't worry. I'm not just going to bang you up all day here. Uh, there's, a text, there's a text I want to show you that's always bugged me, and I've always kind of dismissed it, I'll be honest with you, until, until I was doing my study for this today. And this is what it says. You've heard it before, and you've probably misunderstood it. I'm going to clarify it for you. Here it is. Ready? Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yeah, we like that part. That sounds good. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And here's the money line. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's always bothered me. It sounds kind of cool, right? Why would God punish somebody for his father's sins? Well, that's not what it says. What it's actually saying is that, guess what? Parental sin impacts our children. Because you know what? It's hereditary. It's generational. And whether it's nature or nurture, I mean, honestly, you know, I've got a degree in psych. Nobody really knows the answer to that question. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Yes, actually. It's probably some kind of interaction, interactive thing. But it's clear, it's clear that brokenness is hereditary. We see it. We see it both in the lives of the great heroes of the Bible, right, this story. But we also see it around our own, our own dinner table. We see it when we look at the photos of our departed loved ones, friends, it's real. It's generational. But my third point, it's not all lost. The third point is the providence and the love of God. So fast forward, um, Joseph, back to, back to Joseph and his brothers. 27 years have passed since the day they threw Joe in a ditch and then the, they carried him off to Egypt to be, uh, well, just to be a slave, right? The brothers sold him. They decided not to kill him at the last minute. Two of the brothers said, yeah, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. We can make some money off of it. So they sell Joseph to the Egyptians. He goes off. Problem solved. See you, Joe. Have a, have a nice life. 27 years have passed, and we see, point three, the plan of God unfold. Because in those 27 years, you know, the Lord had been working on him. You know, the Lord doesn't work fast, usually. He works pretty slow. He's methodical. And we see that over those 27 years, while Joseph is living with the Egyptians, not around his own people, he's a stranger in a strange land, right? But we see something important, that Joseph continues to thrive and flourish, man. He is a rock star. Everybody loves Joseph, man. He's charismatic. He's, he's smart. He's good-looking. But most importantly, Scripture says that God was with him. Joseph becomes the most powerful man in Egypt, second to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, Joseph, you are, so, you are such a rock star, man. I'm going to let you manage the whole thing. You're my chief of staff. His rise to power is extraordinary. The brothers don't know that. So they go down, they're in, they're in Israel, they're in the, the promised land, or they're, they're where they are, and they go down to Egypt to get grain because they know the Egyptians have it's a wealthy empire. They go down there and they arrive. And they have no idea that Joseph is there, or they have no idea that Joseph is even alive. They have no idea. They sold him into slavery years ago. And when they arrive, they've discovered something terrifying. 
that Joseph is indeed very much alive, and not only that, he is in charge of the grain stores of Egypt. A little awkward, you might say. So what does Joseph do? He sees the opportunity, the brothers arrive, ha! Kill him! No. Let me show you what he does. Joseph says something so profound. He says, you, you guys... He says, don't be dismayed. That actually means don't be, I'm not, when it says do not be distressed or dismayed, it's a strong Hebrew word. It means, hey, 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 I'm not going to kill you. Don't worry. Just calm down. I'm not going to kill you. You deserve it. And part of me wants to, but I'm not going to kill you. Calm down. Let me tell you something. You did this to me. You sold me down the river. You gave me up for dead. You meant evil for me, Joseph says. But God sent me here to preserve life. Do you see what he's done? Joseph sees the big picture here, man. Yes, these brothers had tried to kill him. Yes, Jacob had sold him out. Yes, all the brothers had conspired against him. Yes, Joseph spent 27 years suffering in Egypt. Friends, we all live in cycles of dysfunction. Every single person in this room shares the exact same psychological state where Joseph was. We've all been wronged. Every person in this room has had sin and brokenness introduced into their lives by someone else. Someone or someones have hurt you very much. Period. That pain is real. Period. That suffering is real. Period. But... Joseph says, you meant evil for me, but God sent me here. In those 27 years, you see, Joseph had realized, friends, I think one of the most profound truths you will ever discover as a, as a believer. That Joseph saw, even in the midst of suffering, the hand of God working. Joseph acknowledges two things, that yes, the pain was real, and that his suffering is real. But listen, Joseph also realized the bigger picture and the bigger point and that God can actually redeem that. Let me ask you a question. This is a real one. Buckle in. Has God ever used suffering for your own good? You never know it at the time. You never know it when you're in it, right? So you never know it when you're in the middle of it, but you can always look back and see God's hand working through it. Has God ever used suffering for your own good? Let me, let me share a scripture with you that you've heard before. I hope I'm going to bring it up because it speaks to this very point. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, listen, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to that again. For those who love God, there's a condition. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. That word is a penta, and it means everything. Not just some things, not just a few things, not just the good things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's you. See, Bob Marley would say, every little thing's going to be all right. I'd try to sing it, but I'm not a very good singer. Bob Marley would say, every little, every little thing's going to be all right, but that's because Bob Marley was high. <laughs> right? But for those who love God, friends, <laughs> all things really do work out for good. Not some things, not most things, not a few things, 
panta, all things. So let me, let me ask you a question as I'm going to wrap up here. Sorry about the Bob Marley comment. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> let me ask you a question. Do you, do you want to break that cycle? You do. We all do. Do you want to break the cycle of dysfunction that haunts every human soul? God, I hope you do. And you do. Let me challenge you to see your life the way Joseph saw his. To see your life the way that Joseph saw his life from a godly perspective. That God and his love and his sovereignty and his mercy can use even the worst things that happen to you for his glory. That suffering of this world he can use for your good. That struggling in your life has a purpose. That suffering has meaning. You know, Jesus is always the best example of anything, right? He's always the best example. Let me give you, as I wrap up, let me just say this. On the night before Christ died, what does he do? Hung out with Bob Marley. <laughs> he, uh, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, right? When he asks his 12 friends, his 12 brothers, don't miss the connection there. He asked his 12 to pray with him, and he prays, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. A cup is a symbol of God's wrath in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, look, God, please bail me out of this one, man. I do not want to die on that cross tomorrow. Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus prayed to avoid the suffering but he also said, Father, thy will be done. And though, even though he did suffer, God knows. Guess what? It all worked out for good, for yours and mine specifically. That Christ dies and suffers on the cross for good, specifically for your good and for mine, because he pays his life in the place of mine. He pays for my sins and my brokenness and restores me to God the Father. His suffering had meaning it saved you. Friends, listen. I hope you learn one thing from this Old Testament season or uh, series, which has been a lot of fun and a little creepy, I'll admit. But we live in a fallen world, man. We live in a fallen world, but, but thanks be to God, he is faithful. He has a plan, and you and I are a part of it. And know this, know this, and see it in the story of these people. That everything does, in fact, work to good for those who love God and are called by him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your servant, Joseph, who reminds us that you are in control, that you are behind the scenes, that suffering and brokenness has a purpose, even in our darkest hour. Remind us that all these things, all things work to good for those who love you, Help us to live boldly and fearlessly and courageously. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.